you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. back listening audience to the guns and mental health podcast and with us today is marcella williams we'll have her introduce herself in a moment um show's brought to you by arms Corps. look at that mike we remembered glad you brought that up arms Corps <laughs> makes one of, some of the best 1911s on the planet also makes some of the best ammunition on the planet and they love walk talk america that's the most important thing yeah walk walk talk america is easy to love though um marcella Introduce yourself, if you would, please. Well, hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, This is definitely an organization that I am proud to wear my bracelet. Uh, It is near and dear to me in my heart because not only am I a Vegas resident and a small business owner and a 2A advocate, but I also am a survivor of gun violence and am here to talk about, you know, what we can do as a community and as a society to bridge the gap so that people don't, you know, have fear in reaching out for help when they need it. You've been a survivor of gun violence a couple of times. Um, why don't you go into that real quick and uh, then we can, you know, take a deeper dive. Later. Okay. So I was married for about 11 years and unfortunately the abuse that I started to um, started to experience, started subtle. So it was like a, a dripping faucet. You know, you buy a new house and you got a leaky faucet, but it's no big deal because you're so excited because you're in a new house. And then slowly but surely that drip becomes a little bit faster and next thing you know, your house is flooded and you're underwater and you don't know what to do. That's one of the ways that I've kind of described how domestic violence can happen when you're not paying attention or you don't think it's going to get that bad. And it ended with me having a loaded gun held to my head, not once, but twice. And unfortunately, I was dumb enough to stick around for the second time, but um, it lit a fire under my butt to make the moves I needed to make to get myself out of that situation and uh, do everything possible to teach my children that that's not how life has to be. And the uh, other instance you uh, you endured, you you gave some credit to the previous one for how you were able to bounce back uh, from the next one. And we just happened to be recording this on the first of October, twenty twenty, which is the anniversary of the thing right. that you endured. And that was so. totally by accident, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Jake and I both scheduled completely for Thursday. Yeah, we, not, I mean, it's perfect timing. But it's just kind of a crazy coincidence. And I seriously just thought you guys kind of planned it that way and was fine with it. But no, actually, I w- I'm a survivor of Route 91, um, 1 October, which is the Vegas mass shooting. And, um, you know, even just thinking about it some days, it's completely surreal still. But 
for me, um, live music has always been something that soothed, soothed my soul. And it was our third year attending it. And so it was my favorite part of the year. It's something I looked forward to over and over. My significant other and I um, had gone three years, and the third year um, was when the massacre happened. And it was on the final set, which was um, Jason Aldean. And we were, you know, three sheets to the wind because we had been day drinking three days in a row. And um, it was kind of our routine to go out into the crowd. We had VIP tickets that, you know, had nice seats and air conditioning and better bathrooms. But it was our habit to go into the crowd during the last couple sets and really be in the Mm -hmm. moment of it and experience it up close. And... um, all of a sudden, there was something that, like everyone said, sounded like fireworks. And um, that was just the first round. And then by the second round, I dropped because other people started dropping too. And I literally pulled my boyfriend down on top of me by his shirt because it still hadn't clicked yet that, you know, it wasn't just fireworks. And um, then the third round went off and We looked up briefly because there was just a very brief moment between the third and fourth round. And we looked up and the woman right next to us was shot. And the guy right in front of us was shot. And it was just horrific because at that point, they turned the lights on um, to light up the, the outdoor grassy area where we were all laying. And it felt like they put a target on all of us. And it was so scary. And um, we looked at each other and we're like, we have to run. We have to run. We kept saying it. And as soon as that fourth round finished, we got up and started running. And there was some kind of break in the, the, the gunfire that allowed a lot of people to run in between the fourth and fifth round. But as soon as that fifth round started, we dropped and we just covered, tried to cover our vital organs. Um in between each one, we would get up and run. And unfortunately, where we were positioned, um, I had tripped and fallen over someone, um, and I started to get trampled. And my boyfriend picked me up and pushed me with all his might to keep running. And uh, it was just, it was just incredible the horrific amount of people you saw just laying there, just laying there like they were frozen. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second, too. But we made it around the median um, and hid behind like a like a tin bar. And he was covering me with his whole body as we were trying to shield ourselves. And kegs behind us were being hit. And we were being like sprayed with beer. And so as soon as we could just get up again and run, get up and I remember sliding on asphalt. I remember sliding into a um, a kiosk like I was sliding into home base. And, you know, there was a girl in there just shaking horribly, crying um, because she felt so stuck. And I just remember looking at her as we got up to run again and trying to encourage her to run with us. But she just was frozen. And um, we finally made it to the church parking lot, and we took shelter behind a car, and there was a cop car right next to us, and they had their back opened, and the police were hiding, um, like taking cover behind there. 
and a woman walked up and she was shot in the shoulder and another woman was screaming for her child who she couldn't find. I mean, it was just unbearable. And my boyfriend walks over to the police officer and he's like, what are you guys doing? Why aren't you going in there to stop them? And he goes, it's coming from the air. It's not coming from the ground and we're not walking out to our graves is exactly what he said. And so that was the first time we had heard and realized that it was coming from the air. Because when we laid there, we knew it was coming from our right, but we didn't know from where. And because of the way that it was ricocheting off of the metal and the stage and everywhere else, it, it was very confusing to to try to understand where it was coming from and how many there were. Um, my best friend and her husband were also there. We, we also go every year together. It's kind of a group thing for us. And they had still been back in the VIP area. And, you know, he is a first responder as well and just an overall hero. So he knew exactly what was happening. And they ran out and started um, trying to help people. But for me, all I could think about was getting home to my children. I was just in utter shock. And um, we ended up running all the way to the MGM still dodging bullets in the church parking lot and uh, got to the MGM. Miraculously, there was a woman who was standing behind us and I didn't even realize it at the time, but I guess I had grabbed her by her shirt and screamed at her to run because she was frozen and she did and she got up and she ran and she found us at the MGM entrance and just hugged me and we cried and it was just... It was so traumatic. I'm sorry to cut you off, but but just to, for for anyone listening that may not really know the setup of where the MGM is compared to where the concert was, um, and also the hotels getting this information because a lot of people thought the shooters were on the ground. So there were some hotels that were locking their doors and closing people out. But just to have just to make that's not a that's not right across the street. That that's a long run. So to be terrified and also to be maybe inebriated, like which many people were from from drinking, you know, through the, throughout the concert, also wearing heels or boots. Um, I mean, there's there's so many factors in your survival of making that hike all the way to the hotel. It's it was crazy. It it was just uh, to put it in a, into perspective. The the venue is actually <clears throat> right across the street from like the Luxor and Excalibur. And so we didn't just run through a church parking lot. We ran through the tre- the Tropicana, then into the MGM, where we, you know, had a moment to catch our breath, and and then we were going to try to to catch um, a ride home because we always Ubered because we knew we'd you know drink a little too much, and and so no cab would let us in, like no cab inside the MGM um, parking area or, or valet area would let us get into their cab. And we were just kind of shell-shocked. Uh, I mean, I'm still, we're hyperventilating. We're running from cab to cab. No one would let us in. So we continued our run, our sprint, down to Koval. And at Koval, um, I made eye contact with a, um, a driver, and he signaled me, which was, you know, like five cars down, he just, he signaled me to run out to him and we ran out and we got in and he's like, what is going on? And he turned up his radio so we could hear all the chatter going on. And as soon as we got in that car and we were getting ready to get on the 215 to go home, I just, I just, I broke down. I completely was sobbing and I begged him to to turn it off because I couldn't hear anymore. And when we got home, 
we turned the news on just to kind of see what everyone was saying. And we looked down at each other and realized we were covered in other people's blood. And um, to this day, we still, you know, are just so full of gratitude and, and, and feel so blessed that, that we are able to be here today to talk about it and, and, you know, help people understand that, you know, it's okay to not be okay, but it's really important that you have a support group or someone to talk to when you're not okay. That is the first time that I've had anybody uh, tell me what it was like. I've, I've, I have not yet talked to anybody in three years since it happened who was there and described it. So um, thank you, um, but also, wow. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mandalay to debate of Koval is about two miles. Um, and it's <laughs> it's not a straight shot either. Um so that's a that's a pretty impressive haul, but you know when you're full of adrenaline, um, I'm sure it just went by in a twinkling. Um, I have so much to ask, but I know you wanted to address some stuff for the listening audience, and you got a licensed clinician here. You got a, a you know a couple of gun owners down there in in Mike's uh, house. Um, so where do you want to go with this, Marcella? Well. Um... I'd really just like to acknowledge the fact that um, I am a gun owner. I ha- I have a CCW I carry, um, and I had it before the shooting. And um, I definitely feel like I started carrying more frequently after the shooting due to, you know, just the hypervigilance that kind of comes with surviving something like that. But also... I don't blame the gun industry. I blame the single individual who stood there on that 32nd floor and emptied magazine after magazine into an unarmed crowd. And I think that when it all first happened, it was really hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around that idea. And I think today it still is hard for some people to to see it from that point of view, but, you know, I want to reassure people that it's okay to, to still, um, you know, understand that guns don't kill people. People kill people. I think, you know, psychologically it's just easier for us to point at the external, uh, because it's, it's a simpler path. We go, you know, ban the thing rather than tackle the big giant, uh, ugly, nuanced, complex problem. Uh, it's, it's harder to do that. So, um, what do we do? We, we take the easier way out uh, and we do that with our relationships. We do it with, you know, jobs that we haven't, you know, <laughs> we haven't left, even though we probably want to, um, it's easier just to pick one thing that we can tangibly grasp and, uh, and blame it, uh, and try to control it rather than, looking holistically. So, I mean, to me, it makes sense that people would want to say, well, just, you know, just ban the guns, right? Um, Because it's easier. So I I appreciate you saying that. Um, You bring up an interesting point about uh, being a concealed carry permit holder, uh, gun owner after tragedy and trauma, because I think there's this misunderstanding that people who struggle with mental illness uh, somehow are struggling with mental illness for the rest of their lives, and they're somehow unfit for for duty, for job, for 
owning guns and that's why we exist. That's why Walk the Talk America um, came into fruition is to bring those two cultures together and say, no, that's not true. Both both can walk simultaneously and uh, and cross over and we can acknowledge that you can be sick and you can recover and if there's a period of time in there where maybe you shouldn't have your guns, that's fine, but let's let's have a conversation about it um, rather than pretending that, that those two things don't exist or that they're mutually exclusive. Right. Now, for me personally, I could see that I had symptoms of PTSD emerging. Um, shortly after the shooting, I was in complete shock for about a week. As a matter of fact, I was like a zombie. But I was so worried that if I sought treatment and was clinically diagnosed with PTSD, it could affect my gun rights. And that, you know, maybe I was being misinformed, but I even asked my significant other the other night, I go, do you remember when we took that CCW course? Didn't, didn't he say something specifically about, you know, being clinically diagnosed with a mental illness could have you, your gun rights removed or, or something along the lines of that. And he's like, yeah, I do. I, I do remember that, but not verbatim exactly. So, so I don't believe, um, I was just, you know, imagining things. I think I just misunderstood it or, or just misinterpreted it. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of misunderstanding. There's a checkbox on a CCW application, at least in, in our county, and I'm, I'm guessing it's reflective of statute, and I, I haven't examined that particular statute. I've been too <laughs> neck deep in red flag laws and transfer laws <laughs> lately. But um, it says adjudicated mentally defective, and that's some very archaic, outdated, judgmental, stigmatizing language um, that recently was brought to Nevada Supreme Court and the adjudicated mentally defective, and I'll put that in air quotes for everybody to, to imagine who's listening because they can't see because this is audio. Um, that has to do with whether a court determines that you are declared mentally unsound, unfit for trial, that kind of thing. Um, what our Supreme Court recently determined was that in, a, in the case of a, of a gentleman who'd had his guns taken away because he had, he had been uh, involuntarily committed, um, that is not the same as adjudication. So adjudication is a very precise definition. It has to do with a court of law determining that you're mentally unsound. Uh, it does not have to do with involuntary commitment to a treatment facility. Interesting of note, though, is also on that same CCW application. It says, um, have you ever been admitted to a mental health treatment facility or mental facility, I think is, is the language, which, again, is very imprecise and uh, very vague and sounds very judgy. So it's like, well, why, why do we ask these questions? Good question, um, because I think it's still rooted in the, the thoughts of yesteryear that, you know, once sick, always sick. And so what is a mental facility? Is it Zephyr Wellness that I own that does outpatient care? Or is it involuntary commitment to a hospital? Um, turns out these days, uh, even the involuntary commitment sounds pretty irrelevant so far as the court's concerned, but it's still out there. Right. right? And it also says voluntary or involuntary. So... Yeah. Does it really? I did. I didn't. I didn't see that. That's not on mine because I did pull up the Washoe County one, and it, it it says, "Have you ever been admitted to a mental facility?" And I was like, "Well, I don't. I don't know. Like, does that mean hospitals? Does that mean outpatient care? You know, admitted meaning what? Does it mean that uh, I I went in for couples counseling and you know before we got married, and I have to check that box? Like, <laughs> exactly. Right. I don't know. Uh, and and there's no guidance on it. So uh, I think most of us just check no because uh, we don't want to endure whatever 
judgmentalism is going to come down the pipe or the the legal battle that's going to follow because it's going to well, be well you know how many people and this is just through my history and learn one of the reasons why i started walk to talk america is just out of pure curiosity but i saw the issue happening within the gun community because the minute that i started walk to talk america right i said st- people would find me at gun shows and they would ask me as if I was some, like I had the knowledge to understand why their doctor was asking if they had firearms in the house. And they thought it was a random question. And we're talking like people that just went in for a checkup. Right. And they were like, I said, no, because they're just scared of, because it's been beaten in our heads. Like be careful who you tell you own firearms for you. can get them. Yeah, exactly. You can get them taken away. And um, I knew that was a huge issue. Cause I'm thinking if I'm getting cornered privately, you know, at these shows by a bunch of my peers that are like, Hey man, can you tell me exactly why they asked that question? And I lied. <laughs> like, like it just didn't feel right to me. And it sounds like you're in that same situation. Absolutely. I think I did not seek out the treatment that I probably needed at the time due to um, my own um, misinterpretation of the laws. And, it, and it's a shame because, you know, maybe if I would have, um, then I wouldn't still have nightmares. Well, and we, our organization, you know, is, is an anti-suicide organization. We're suicide prevention, intervention, postvention. Uh, and if you don't, we know that if you don't get treatment and you struggle with these things, you, you tend to take your own life. And if you don't take your own life, you end up decompensating to the point that you're just less effective in life anyway, because you haven't taking care of it. And and we know that there's physiological symptoms that come along with untreated mental illness too, like um, shorter life expectancy. Um, there's, there's sicknesses that come along because your body's so busy trying to fight off the anxiety or the depression that it doesn't have the energy to fight off infection. Um, so there's, there's a whole litany of, of problems that come along with untreated mental illness. And if one of the barriers to care is a very vague or imprecise law that hints at removing somebody's ability to defend themselves uh we need to fix that and it's it's i think it's the responsibility of the citizens certainly but also probably the you know the mental health community to to go do that too because we're complicit in that process if we don't speak up and say hey there are barriers to care access uh that we need to address. absolutely and also i just want to make a note to anyone listening that um when you look at statistics you know the amount of people each year that die from a mass shooting, it is, you know, minimal compared to suicide. And um, so for someone to say that, you know, they sh- we should be stripped of our rights to our right to bear arms because of mass shooters, you know, I, I implore them to do a little more research because it is... I mean, I think we're talking, um, you know, depending on the definition, because I know the FBI has a different definition versus um, the, another gun association. And one of them is like 88 a year was killed by mass shooters. And then another one classified it as like 347. And, and just depending on the definition. But when you look at suicides, I mean, we're in the tens of thousands. and 48,000 yeah. annually. And climbing. Um, to, to do a quick uh, breakdown there, so 58 people plus the shooter for a total of 59 died on October 1st, 2017 in the Mandalay Bay shooting. Um, 58 per day in America died by firearm Yeah, they suicide. think that number's gone up too. Uh, 
It certainly has. Yeah, we just because the oh, suicides overall have gone up, and if the percentages maintain, uh, yes, of course that number will go up. So we're having a one October shooting daily by suicide. Yeah, they don't rattle those names off, you know, in the media, and kind of jam it down your throat. And that's why, you know, it doesn't really sell ad space to do that. <laughs> you know, sensationalizing October 1. These are horrible events, but it's the same thing I go through when I have to present to, you know, many of the people in the mental health side of things is I have a Venn diagram behind me. And it's always tough to present that because you never want to make it sound like you're belittling the mass shooting experience or, you know, not recognizing that those are horrible, horrible tragedies, but suicide for some reason just does not get that same compassion. Um, right. You know, it's, it's, well, there's this, you know, there's a lot of stigmas associated with that as well. And, you know, I guess the, the tougher question is what can we be doing every day to reach more people so that they feel comfortable when they are having these thoughts or having these um, problems that, that they can reach out and that they have a support system because there's definitely um, plenty of people out there who need it. So what are some of the ways that What's we your- can address these mental illnesses that lead people to take their own lives and, and not just, you know, dealing with suicide, but what are some ways that some treatments that I could have sought out or, um, you know, dealing with my PTSD? Um, more podcasts for sure. Uh, everyone should, should have a podcast and everyone should listen to podcasts, but, uh, cheekiness aside, I have this, uh, very bizarre paradoxical intention here where I want to work myself out of a job, which is why I do things like podcasts and, uh, share the information that's in my head. Cause I, I'm a believer in the infinite human capacity for one to solve one's own issues. Um, you do need support. You do need somebody to bounce things off of. You do need community interconnectedness, uh, and interdependence. That's not to be confused with dependence or independence, which I think sometimes gets thrown in our face. We want interdependence. We don't want dependence and perpetuity on a mental health clinician. And it sounds probably strange coming out of a clinician's mouth. It's like, you know, it's like, what are you doing, Jake? You're, you're pushing business away. It's like, yeah, I am. Because you should not be seeing your counselor week over week, years on end. Uh, we still fall under the medical umbrella, whether you like it or not. Um, we still should be assessing people ongoing as we treat them say what are you dealing with what what's your goal what are the objectives to the goal and if we're not hitting them then we need to readjust or um you need to start applying yourself a little bit more i need to i need to fix the way that i'm doing my interventions or we need to look at a different counselor um to keep somebody just on the calendar week over week is is not appropriate it's not legal it's not ethical it's disingenuous to keep charging people uh and to hide behind well i feel better every time i leave my session it's like yeah but who in, who else in your community can you do do that with that doesn't involve paying a fee right. we should be empowering people to go plug into their families their significant others um their friends neighbors uh churches bowling leagues so that it's not professional treatment all the time um we should, I should be working myself out of a job. And the best way to do that is to heal the community. How do we do that? Empower people with the same knowledge that I got through graduate school and the multiple thousands of hours of practice that I got. So if, if we can do that, then we'll be good. Um, how is your question? You know, what's available? 
there's peer support. There's, um, there's, there's podcasts, there's YouTube videos, there's books, there's all sorts of stuff that we can use to help write the ship, so to speak. But I think the chief, uh, linchpin is personal awareness. You got to know that you need it right. in the first place and you have to be ready to make the change. Some people have just been stuck in a cycle so long of, you know, being unhealthy that it just is very, very scary to let go and embrace something new like peace and tranquility and leave the chaos behind. So, um, it's a, it's a complex problem. I love talking about it you know, fires me up. Um, but you know, uh, the, the depth of the depth of the human capacity is, uh, is amazing. It's never ending. And I think that's why I find so much joy in this. Like no matter what you're going through, there's always something. Right. And I I find that really, there's a few things that I did just to, to help myself, um, not feel so anxious and kind of, uh, understand really what my triggers were. So for me, I discovered that first of all, shooting guns felt great. But when I would be out shooting, if I wasn't watching the person who was also shooting or if I didn't, if I couldn't see where the bullets were coming from, I would start to feel triggered. So I pushed myself to be around that a little bit more and kind of overcome that. And so now understanding that trigger, I feel like I've got that one out of the way. Um, Another trigger that still, still to this day, it kind of gets me a little bit is the massive amounts of sirens. When there's something big going on and there's just ambulance after ambulance or cop car after cop car, I can feel myself get a little shaky. And I remember, take a deep breath, count to 10. What am I grateful for? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so lucky to be here. And that is not relevant to what I'm going through today. That is, you know, so just the constant reminder of of my ability to be resilient, um, along with meditation has helped. Um, Those are just some things that I take... I wake up in the morning and remind myself what I'm grateful for. Five things. And it can't be cheesy like, you know, food, water, shelter. I do this with with my kids also to help them kind of be in a better mood for the day. And I think it's it's those healthy habits. Exercise is a great one. Going hiking. Those have all helped me. Um, but for the there's always going to be those people out there who, I don't want to say thrive on this, because that's not the right word, but it's almost like they continue to live in the perpetual cycle. They keep telling themselves a story over and over. And those are the people that I think need a little bit more of a hand up to help get them out of the rut. Well, I was, I was going to ask you that. So, you know, you shared your like first person experience, you know, with your significant other, but you were there with other people. Right. Right. And you guys, 22,000. Right, and and you were there with other personal friends, or you had people probably in the crowd, mm-hmm. right? Like that you knew, or you came across them, and were like, "Hey, you're here." Like, yep. you know, how, how is some of the people that you know that were there? How I mean, how did they take it? How did they bounce back? Because I've talked to quite a few survivors. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to see the perspectives, right? Some people, like you said, someone got shot right next to you. You, you saw yeah. it, right? Some people didn't, so they were they were able to get out of there like super fast. You know what I mean? They right. had a beeline to a perfect place to go. Others, you know, ran through a fence, the fence fell down and people were trampling people. So like how, you know, how, what would you say the experience of some of your close friends? Um, the, my personal friends that I know 
um, that I speak to regularly, they all went through a series of emotions. Um, but f- with regard to my best friend and her husband, they live out of state. And so it was almost easier for them, in a sense, to put it behind them and continue to move forward because they weren't watching the local news every day where it was on every single day. Um, you know, driving to work, I would drive by that site once, twice a week at least. So it was a constant reminder. But when I realized that I started feeling triggered driving by there, I drove by there more until it stopped. Um, So they were able to, you know, kind of compartmentalize it a little bit and really focus on moving forward. And then I have other friends that, you know, have always been incredibly positive as well. And they were able to change their business career, completely pivot and find new purpose, new purpose in life in the sense that they're, they want to help people also struggling with other things. So a friend of mine started a vis- vision board workshop um, and she became a, um, a life coach where she helps people, um, you know, navigate through whatever stresses they're going through. And, and um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of positive things come from this. So not to take away, not to diminish from, you know, the 800 people that were injured, not at all. Um, But there are definitely some miraculous stories of people's resilience that came about this. I think that's another good illustration of what we call the dialectic, the both and, right? And so people tend to go binary with this, um, either or, black or white, all or nothing. And Mike's reference earlier to, you know, I don't want to minimize mass shootings but we're minimizing suicides if we glorify mass shootings and ignore suicides, right? So both can coexist. Both can be terrible. Both can be learned from. Both can be, you know, stand to have some some benefit if you go through it and survive. Similarly, um, it can be tragic and triumphant. Some people have great stories. And for the people who are living in the tragedy still three years later, and I, I know what you're talking about. There's lots of people who I encounter that come through my realm that are just um it's almost like tragedy or chaos or anger or addiction or whatever it is is their identity and the the problem with that is that if you're not getting getting what you want out of life um there's a pretty simple solution it's change what you're doing that's easier said than done though because if we've mentally conflated what we do with who we are then what it means is letting go of what I do, even if it's super unhealthy, means I don't know who I am anymore. And that's very, very scary for people to step into and go, even though I've been through abuse, trauma, neglect, um, addiction, whatever it is, um, I don't want to do it anymore. But it's so ingrained in me that I don't know who I am without it. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to let go of it because it just feels like home, even though it's ugly and destructive and all those things. Uh, similarly, people who identify with their careers as who they are, you know, it's like I was Bob, the accountant, Bob, the accountant is Bob, the accountant for 40 years. And then it comes time for retirement. He just doesn't want to do accounting anymore. He's like, I can't quit because this is who yeah. I am. So a lot of what I try to, to tell people is like, you're so much bigger than that. And that goes back to the infinite capacity of the human psyche. Um, you aren't just 
your outward behaviors. You aren't just the things that have happened to you. You aren't just the life script that brought you to this day. Um, there's so much more. There's so much deeper, lateral, uh, vertical. Uh, take, take the metaphor wherever you want. But at bare minimum, you get to author the rest of your life, however you see fit. And will you be influenced by the things that crafted you? Of course, yeah. Do you have to necessarily cling to them as though that's the entirety of who you are? Geez, I hope not. And it sounds like you and some others have moved through this and said, yeah, it's it's a thing that I went through, but it's not going to define right. me. And, you know, you touched on something that I think is is really important um, in the um, in the realm of veterans in particular. I think they struggle a lot, especially ones who have been injured and, you know, military was their life. And now here they are not able to do what they love. I think they really struggle with that identity and that ability to say, this is who I was and now I can't do that anymore. And I think that's why we see, you know, so much, um, you know, so much of a higher suicide rate in veterans because, you know, it, it is who they were and all of a sudden they were stripped of it. And so um, I had mentioned to you earlier a book that I, I really love. It's called Resilience um, by Eric Greitens and he's an ex Navy SEAL. And in the book, it's a series of letters um, between him and um, an, another Navy SEAL that was um, discharged, and he just spiraled out of control and ended up, um, you know, wrapping his car around a tree, and uh, it just goes into, hey, this isn't you. You know, you you love the military, and the military loved you, but right now you need to redefine who you are, and you're absolutely capable of doing it. And I think that's the story that needs to be told more is that, you know, you are not the military, you are not the accounting firm, you know, you can, you know, rebrand yourself or, or you know, get um, creative and, and do something new. And, and that's a great uh, talking point when we talk to people who are lost. Yeah. It, so one of the things that I want to talk about, too, is PTSD. Uh, for so long, I think the phrase, and Jake, you can jump in on this at any time, but I think the term, right, um, was always associated with uh, veterans or, or, or you know, active military, like PTSD. Many people don't realize that PTSD can, it, it's the same for the kid who's growing up in Compton, who's stepping over his peers' bodies as he's on his way to school. And then back, right? PTSD, um, the way it affect, affects everybody that was involved in October 1. I mean, that, that is just something that is way more common. It's bigger than just the military. You know, you don't have to be a soldier to have it. And I think there's still a lot of people that don't actually in, understand that. I think it's getting better. Yeah. Um, you know, but it wasn't a few years ago. It's like when you mentioned PTSD, people just automatically defaulted to a soldier. Oh, what branch of the military were you in? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, and people, this comes through ignorance, right? So we tend to pigeonhole people and label them and categorize them as though uh, some definition or some condition uh, tells us all that we need to know about them. Uh, oh, you have uh, brown skin. That must mean I can draw these conclusions. Oh, you have tattoos. I must be able to draw these conclusions. Uh, oh, you said you played baseball or you were in a fraternity or whatever it is. Um, now I Now I know the entirety of who you are. And it, and it keeps us safe in our egos to, to think that we know people based on some label. Um, and now we've got people, you know, saying, you know, using the term intersectionality, which I think is fine. Like, I'm fine with intersectionality. We, we, we all are intersectional. Um, 
but we're also integrated, comprehensive, and, and unlimited. So what it, when it comes to mental illness, because our profession has been stigmatized for so long based on uh, screen and, and you know and, and books and whatnot, um, Halloween haunted houses taking place in you know mental institutions, uh, people just stopped investigating what it really means to have a mental illness, and we stopped uh, dec- deciding that it could be overcome. It was like, nope, just lock them in with, into the crazy bin and throw, throw away the key. Uh, you're no good to society anymore, right? Well, now we have this concept called rehabilitation. And I say that now as if it's like a new thing, but I think it's just becoming popularized where people can struggle and emerge on the other side. Again, the dialectic, it's not you're struggling and then you're done. Um, we struggle, we overcome, and we, uh, we move forward in life. Uh, usually, you know, more, more, with more awareness and capacity than ever before. So um, this is an excellent teaching moment. I've got my um, desk reference to the DSM-5 right here. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is what DSM stands for. And we're on the fifth iteration. So I'll just read the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then uh, we can talk a little bit about um, what it means not to have it anymore. So the following criteria apply to adults, adolescents, and children older than six years. For children six years and younger, See the other criteria. So here's criterion A. And by the way, PTSD is actually a misnomer. I'm, I'm kind of a, a language uh, Nazi. And uh, <laughs> post-traumatic is one word. So really it should be PSD. But anyway, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, criterion A, exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. So what's important there is that it can be actual or threatened, and it doesn't have to be death. It can be serious injury or sexual violence, and I think a lot of people tend to overlook that too. So, one, directly witnessing the traumatic event, okay, which you did. You directly witnessed it. You were a part of it. So, all you got to do is hit one of these criteria. Two, witnessing in person the event as it occurred to others. Three, learning that the traumatic event occurred to a close family member or close friend. In cases of actual or threatened death of a family member, friend, the event, and then parenthetical S on event every time, so it's event or events, must have been violent or accidental. So it could be an accident now. So a car crash. Experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to adverse details of the traumatic events. Um, And then parenthetically it says, e.g., first responders collecting human remains, police officers repeatedly exposed to details of child abuse. Okay, now note... Criterion A4 does not apply to exposure through electronic media, television, movies, or pictures unless this exposure is work-related. Now, I think that's really disingenuous because what we found out after 9-11 was we have something called vicarious trauma. Never before in the history of our country had we seen so many images repeatedly shown to us on loop of people dying in mass. And as a result, many of us across the country felt the same shockwave of trauma after even though we weren't present in New York City or Pennsylvania or Washington DC, we ourselves suffered after that. Now the duration of suffering varied, but I can testify that as a 23-year-old, when that happened, I was sick to my stomach, I was lightheaded. Um, it was it was very bizarre. And I don't I, I was I was stressed. I was stressed just simply by watching the images. So all right, criterion B, presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms. All right, this is, uh, they have to be associated. So one, recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories. 
Now note, in children older than six years, repetitive play may occur in which the themes or aspects are expressed. So if you're repeatedly, if the kid's repeatedly playing with his dolls and toys and recreating explosions because he's, you know, he was near an explosion, that, that could be, you know, that uh, intrusive memory. Two, recurrent distressing dreams. Three, dissociative reactions, meaning flashbacks, um, where the individual feels as if the traumatic event is recurring. Four, intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues that symbolize aspects of the event. So that's your sirens, that's your, your gunfire, that's your fireworks popping off at Disneyland. Um, it's, it's an external cue that symbolizes something of the event. Five, marked physiological reactions. Um, so that could be uh, if, you, if you recoil at some of those external cues. That's a physiological reaction. And then C and D and E, and I don't need to keep going, but I'll just give an overview. There's three pages of this stuff. Persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the event. So if you, if you know you're like, I, I just can't drive by there. I just can't drive by there. And that's out of your routine because your work is right by there and you have to like take this big, long, circuitous route. That would hit criterion C. D, negative alterations in cognitions and mood. Um, so beginning or worsening after the traumatic event. So if you're, um, if you, if you can't remember the thing, you've blocked it out, you slip into depression or anxiety, um, or you start minimizing it. Uh, it's not that bad. Or you start talking about yourself, like, you know, the world is all dangerous and, uh, no one can be trusted, that kind of thing. Uh, marked alterations in arousal or reactivity associated with the event. And then here's the key duration of the disturbance is more than a month. So that's PTSD. Now, if we, Compare that to acute stress disorder. All the same criteria apply, but it's less than a month. We diagnose somebody with this stuff. We create a treatment plan. We create objectives to the goals. We get them through it. You're healed because if you don't hit the criteria anymore, you're not having the dreams. You're not you're not repetitively playing. If you're a kid, yeah, uh, you don't you, you you're not uh, the, the gunfire and sirens don't bother you anymore. You fail to hit those criteria, you no longer qualify for the diagnosis, and that's true of all diagnoses in the book. If it goes away, you don't have PTSD anymore. You now get to refer to, I once had PTSD. And I think that's the redemptive story that we want to share is that um, people who can recover from this stuff and do go on to live normal lives and they should have their rights restored, including the right to work. Well said. Yeah, I have a question for you. Um, and, and we'll take it back even to the domestic violence survival, right? Um, you... We're always pro-gun? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I, my very first gun was a pistol BB gun when I was seven. Okay, so when 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 did you get, if you don't mind me asking, the CCW, did that come after the, the tragedy, or did you? No, I actually had already had it. I only had it, though, for a few months, uh, maybe three or four months prior to the shooting. And when you were in the shooting, right, um, was there ever a moment where you're like, you're obeying the law. You're around alcohol. You're in a public event. You did, you weren't caring, but I mean, that's a, that's a feeling in itself to, to be like, I don't know where these shooters are coming from. If they're on the ground, yeah. I wish I had my gun. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because I did think there were, when, when it first happened, I thought they were from the coming from the right. And the way that I pictured it in my head was there were people walking around through the crowd. And when they lit it up, I was just, I was hysterical, but, um, no, there was a moment where I was like, I can't even defend myself. I can't even defend myself. Um, 
because they we went through metal detectors. So how did these people get in here? I mean, these there were so many racing thoughts, but it always kept going back to my kids. And um, yeah, there was definitely moments where I was mad at myself. And then actually my significant other, um, he says he'll never drink like that again at an event just because he wants to be more cognizant and more situationally aware. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But part of my recovery has, I've always kind of, I've always been resilient. I've, I've been through hell and back a few times. I've always been resilient. And so part of my recovery was to push myself out there to that sense of uncomfortable and get past it. So I started going back to concerts with without my significant other. I started, um, you know, doing the things that I love uh, that for a few months there scared me again. Like I couldn't wait to get back out there and start rock climbing because that sense of fear, yet also that sense of, hey, I just did this. It kind of reminded me that even when I'm nervous and shaking, I can still push through and overcome and, and do something great. And so I always had this sense of, I'm going to be just fine. I just have to work. There's just a little bit of work right now that's going to pay off in the long run. And, um, you know, on the other spectrum, I know other people that, that didn't necessarily see it that way. And um, they avoid a lot of things that can bring back those bad memories. Did you have any experience with anyone that became anti-gun after that? Yes. Which you can appreciate. Yes. And you can sort of appreciate where they're coming from at the same time you don't agree with it, right? Like, you you kind of go okay like they're gonna they're gonna put their emotional energy in blaming the ar-15s that he had up there right because that's the narrative and everything like that but you don't feel that way but you have to kind of talk it through with people right um you know i had to check myself because um shortly after the shooting someone that i looked up to in the business world who wasn't there surrendered their ccw and announced it on social media and I thought to myself that was reckless because now you've given away your right to protect yourself when you could need it. And I made a couple comments and they responded back defensively because I definitely put them on defense and uh, we no longer communicate. And so it, it was just shortly after, I think a lot of us were very reactive and, uh, it was a knee-jerk response to seeing him cut up his CCW. I thought it was just completely – he doesn't even live in the state. And so I was just – it, it kind of speaks volumes about how many people were affected by this. Um, I know a lot of people in the community that weren't even there were traumatized by this. I, I know people personally that, that kind of still deal with it even though they were nowhere near it. But they knew we were there. Um, or, you know, they knew other people that were there. And, and I think that it just kind of goes to show, like you had mentioned, the the ripple effect that it can have on an entire community or an entire nation. Because um, over and over, they played it on the news, like, every day. Um, and so I know that affected people. But then when the New York Times video came out of the timeline, um, it you know, I went through this weird phase for about a week, maybe, where I sought out every single video I could find, just looking, just trying to see if I could, you know, almost like piece it together myself. Maybe I don't know. It was just part of my issue I was going through at, at the time. 
And um, the New York Times video came out and my best friend is in it, like her footage they used and you could hear her voice. And so I watched it and then I watched it again and I shouldn't have because I had I went into a full on panic attack and lost an entire day and a half. But part of that was me trying to push myself maybe to heal a little faster. I don't know. But it's interesting to see how something traumatic like that can affect so many people. And that. Yeah, I think I want to cross reference back to the 9 11 thing and my own experience of you know, walking in downtown Reno to a candlelight vigil three, four days later um, and looking at the, at the casino towers, wondering if a plane was going to fly into him, which was absurd because the FAA had grounded all the planes. But I was still envisioning that so I was literally mentally replaying what was possible in my own town and that'll add to your trauma so for people who you know watch these repeated images and I want to bird walk just for a second into social media here if you're on social media and you're watching images of whatever violence it is that you're watching or your kids are watching it um, your your mind will absolutely respond to that you will you there's an old saying that says you are what you eat um, you are also what you consume visually and, um, you will become traumatized by that stuff. Uh, at, at minimum, you'll become desensitized to it so that, you know, life just stops mattering. If you play a bunch of violent video games or whatever, um, it's possible that that can have a negative effect, but here's what, what I'm seeing in practice when people are not directly involved in the event, but still have some traumatic residue from it, they start to, to believe that they're not worthy of care. It's like, well, those people had it so much worse than I did because they were actually there. Me, I just watched the news a bunch and I am now scared. And it's like, and my message to that is nonsense. Go get treated. Um, take care of that. You, your distress is just as valuable as anyone else's. Um, I really encourage people not to do the comparison game based on belief systems. If you're stressed and struggling, go get help. You don't look across the street to who's who you think is more distressed and somehow more worthy of help and that you're somehow taking their spot in line. Um, you aren't as good to anyone if you're distressed and struggling. So please, please, please try not to play the comparison game. Everybody who experienced that distress and the ripple effect is, is worthy of, of healing. Absolutely. Well said. And that goes for any kind of act of violence, you know, if you, you know, you had a, a spouse or someone get injured, you know, in the military as well, you know, they need to seek treatment as well, because they're still reeling with the, the after effects. 100%, 100%. Um, and, and I think too, what, what we want to do is pay attention to what we intake, right? So if you're, if you're noticing your kids are on social media, uh, absorbing garbage into their brains. It, it's not, it doesn't have to be violence. It could just be mindless muck that just doesn't, it's not edifying. Um, step in. We have duty as parents to step in and, and show our kids what is worthwhile, what is, what is worth consuming and what is not. Um, I don't, I don't want to see our society erode because parents are just like, whatever it's, it's just, you know, it's similar to the cartoons that I watched. No, it isn't because the cartoons you watched were scheduled a half hour at a time with, you know, commercial breaks every seven minutes and they were accessible only during that time. Um, kids now can just 
constantly, endlessly, and adults too, constantly, endlessly consume content that is mindless. I get we all need a timeout, but we don't need a timeout from reality several hours a day, every day of the week on demand. Um, we want to, we want to pay attention to that stuff. So, and having, you know, bringing up children, you, you've said numerous times in the conversation that you kept thinking about your kids. What, did, what were you thinking about? Were you, what, what goes through the mind? Like, so eventually your mind went somewhere to where you, you know, you needed to survive and you were thinking about your children. Was it, how do you visualize that? Like, for me, I was so scared of leaving this earth and leaving them with my ex-husband. I know that that might sound bizarre, but... No, it's fine. <laughs> you know, uh, just I know who that person is. I know, I know the way he reacts, the way he talks, the way um, he handles situations, and... To not have any kind of balance in their lives where they can come to me and there's peace and calmness to balance whatever they experienced the weekend before, it, it was so scary to me. And um, I just, all I could think about was I'm not leaving them. <laughs> but Yeah, that's a, yeah, I, 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 I father of two daughters. And there are times when I absolutely don't do anything like that. You know, my friends will be like, oh, we're all going to go do this or we're going to climb this mountain. And there, there have been times in my life when I said, like, I can't do it. You know, when I was younger, I'd do everything. I ran with the bulls. I did all this dumb sh shit, you know. Right. And, and then as I got older, I started to realize, like, yeah, uh, they need me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And and I'm the only thing I can control is my parenting. You know what I mean? Right. And having an ex that, you know... Over the years, her mental health, you know, it, it basically declined because she refused to get help. But, you know, there's a big part of my life, too, that where I say, like, all the time, I can't leave. <laughs> it's right. just not going to be possible. I don't trust anybody else. Yep. Yeah. So I appreciate that. But I just I wanted to talk about what that meant, because I think, you know, you say, hey, I thought about my kids. Well, how, in what capacity? Right. I, obviously, it's always not being around them anymore. Right. But, you know. But. To the extent of leaving them with someone abusive full time scared yeah. me. Um, it just, I, I don't know. I just thought over and over, you know, and it was ironic because Sundays are usually my days. Uh, I usually get them back on Sundays and they, their dad had kept them because I was going to this event and uh, I, you know, there was definitely a little bit of guilt that played a role in that afterwards as well, because I should have been home with them that day. But I had taken time for myself, which I, I totally am for. I think it's really important, no matter what circumstance you're in, what, what obstacles you're going through or what your life is, is that you have to take time for yourself. Um, and, and in this particular incident, it was doing something that I absolutely love, which is going to concerts. Yeah. Were they aware that you were down there? So they all knew I was there. Oh, um, and yeah, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're, their dad doesn't do a great job at protecting them from things like this. So um, my son texted me at about 5.30 in the morning and asked me if I was okay. And I burst into tears again because I had texted their dad at midnight that I was okay, just so that if they woke up and saw that in the morning, that they knew. And I just couldn't understand why he wouldn't communicate that to them 
so aware that they had any fear that I wasn't. Right. Um, but no, I got the kids back that day and we just kind of all laid there all day. Like, like I was just a zombie and, and all I could do is hug them. Um, I don't know, but I never understood what shock was until then. Um, and there was just, it was a, a learning curve that I feel fortunate enough to where, you know, I can, um, bounce back in a sense and also, have empathy for those who don't heal at the same rate that I do. I think that's something really important to talk about that people with PTSD or people with, you know, any mental illness, especially when you're going through it together, um, you're not going to heal the same way or at the same rate. And so you have to create a space for that or, or, or dialogue for that and empathy because, you know, what I went through and, and how I recovered ironically, is somewhat different than my significant other because we both healed very differently, you know, and and understanding that it's not just fight or flight, that it's fight, flight, or freeze um, is, is a huge uh, tool that you can, can learn from and, and be more compassionate towards people because I genuinely could not understand for the life of me why anyone would still lay there. And... Um, that's what you hear my best friend saying in the video is why are all these people laying on the ground? Why are they laying on the ground? And it was because either they were already shot or they were completely frozen. So just empathy is so important and, and understanding that what, how you heal is not how, you know, Joni's going to heal. It's not how Tommy's going to heal, but we're all on our, on a path to heal. So it, you, you mentioned empathy multiple times there. I think it's important to point out the distinction between empathy and sympathy. Uh, sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. It's pity, and that doesn't do any good. Empathy is feeling as another person feels. Uh, identifying, you know, that's that's what empathy is. And making your best guess at, at what they're feeling so you can validate it. Compassion, though, compared to empathy, pulls the uh, pulls the energy away in a different direction. So, if we spend too much time empathizing, it can become a real drain. And I think that a lot of practitioners fall into this category where work tends to become draining because we're empathizing all the time. It's like, I'm feeling what my people are feeling. Uh, that's good temporarily so we can get an idea about where they are. But then we want to turn that off and have compassion. Compassion is to suffer alongside. So literally translated, it's the come, which is with, and pati, which is the root in Latin for uh, to suffer. So you're suffering with someone. Um, you're going alongside them in the journey. And meeting people where they are involves both empathy and compassion. But if we stay too long in empathy, it tends to feel like we're the ones doing the feeling. And, and that's highly inappropriate, especially from a clinical perspective for me to feel my client's feelings all the time. I don't, their sadness isn't mine to carry. Their anxiety isn't mine to solve. It's theirs to solve. It's theirs to carry. And if we start to do that as, um, non-clinical community people, we start just having so much empathy for everybody. We don't have any room for ourselves. So what we want to do is tilt a little bit toward compassion. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful guy online who has a great following. He goes by Z Dog M D D O Double G, and uh, his name is Doctor uh, Zubin Demania. Um, he's he's absolutely amazing YouTube channel, Instagram uh, account, and I, I stole that from him. And I I emailed him and I told him I was going to steal <laughs> it. But the idea between empathy and compassion, I think, is one 
uh, it's a distinction we should be mindful of so that we don't burn ourselves out just having all this empathy all the time for everybody. Um, we we want to have compassion, and uh, and that and compassion is never ending. Um, we can have compassion for all sorts of things, and it, and it pulls us out of the, the binary too. I can have compassion for people who don't want guns at all. I can have compassion for people who want guns in all, in all different ways. Um, that pulls them pulls the the two together so that we're not sitting there throwing rocks at each other all the time. Wow, wouldn't it be a better world if everyone thought like that? <laughs> More podcasts. <laughs> More podcasts. Not in twenty twenty. <laughs> We gotta wait till twenty twenty one to move to the right direction. <laughs> but we're working on it, one step at a time. We are. I sure appreciate you uh, being on with us and sharing that story. Um, is there anything we didn't cover yet? Um, what have we not talked about? Well, can you tell? I, these are my curiosities, right? Uh, how do you recover from the domestic violence incident where you have a gun to your head? Uh, so. The first time it happened was August 2011. And, uh, you know, he was completely inebriated. So being the abused that I was, I made excuses for him. And I we chalked it up to him being so drunk, and he quit drinking. And uh, we tried to work through it. We started going to marriage counseling and and really just, you know, him owning up to it. But unfortunately, um, when I began my business and I, I really started to create some sort of interdependence or independence on my own and, and uh, you know, there was all of a sudden like a, a sense of threat, I think. Like all of a sudden, if I wanted to leave, I actually could. And unfortunately, it made the situation worse. It exasperated all his fears of abandonment, um, and unfortunately, uh, the fighting got worse. Uh, I think you, you, hear, you hear a lot of statistics, but one thing I think that's really important to remember is that um, 70% of all domestic homicides occur after the woman leaves. And I knew that. I knew this because I was already making a plan. So I had already checked out, and he could definitely sense that I had checked out, so he thought that somehow he could get me back by starting to be more controlling. And if anything, it just made me feel more scared. And um, unfortunately, we had another knockdown drag out fight, which ended with not only the loaded gun to my head, but um, with a swollen eye, my eye was completely swollen shut for three days. And, and I went back to the marriage counselor um, and I, you know, confided in her and she told me i'm going to tell you this as a friend not as your therapist but if you don't leave he will kill you and so that was all i needed to hear because once again all i can think about are my kids and so i made a plan and i started figuring it out and i finally confided in my best friend because i you keep it a secret because it's embarrassing. No one, you know, the main thing is, is people always ask, well, why did you stay so long? Well, because it didn't start that way. You know, in the beginning, it started with him doting on me and, you know, telling me how beautiful I am and putting me up on this pedestal. I mean, it, there was there's a, a lot that goes on um, in, in the whole abusive relationship process. And it, it definitely doesn't start that way. And so um, I finally confided in my best friend 
who's also my business partner. And uh, we we made a plan. And, you know, she's definitely more of a go-getter, like, let's get this shit done tomorrow. So we started house hunting, and she helped me find a rental. And then we went shopping, and she went with me to go buy everything to furnish it. And um, I packed a U-Haul in a day and just took half. Just I left them the nicer TV. I, I just took the bare necessities. And um, uh, we escaped. And I say escaped because I feared for my life after that. And I took the kids for about two weeks to give him time to cool off because I genuinely didn't know what he would do. Um, he had threatened to kill himself before. So I just, and I knew he had the gun that we had together. So I just, I just didn't know what would happen. And after that, um, I sought therapy, um, pretty regularly. I had a a therapist I'd already kind of spoken to a few times that I really like, and he helped me like learn how to communicate with someone like my ex-husband to where, just keep in mind the, the goal. The goal is always to transition the kids safely. The goal is always to parenting plan. Yeah. Parenting plan how to co-parent with someone like this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really set me up for success, but also it was helping me heal by learning these skills and then applying them and they, they worked. And so, um, you know, it just, it was, I feel very fortunate that I was able to to have that resource, um, and and it gave me the confidence that I needed to continue to maintain my business and you know balance co-parenting and and everything going on and um, and and realize it, it really gave me a sense of resilience that wow if I could survive survive that I can I can survive anything. I have a tough question for you. Um, you're pro two a uh, CCW. You're in this situation. Yeah. And where our people, the 2A culture, the gun culture, like red flag laws, right? We yeah. hate them. We don't want them. But you're with someone who probably technically shouldn't own a firearm. <laughs> I have definitely had that conversation um, with close friends where um, it, when it had first came out, um, wasn't it with you and I were sitting there um, one time outside of, outside of the barbershop? And we were talking about specifically the red flag laws and how I am one of those people who I'm on the fence because I personally know someone who should not yeah, have a firearm, firearm. Yeah. and yet they have a CCW. And the idea that they're legally able to carry around a gun when there can be so mentally unstable, it, it really scares me. Right. And, and, and there are probably listeners right now that are probably going to say, we're getting her version of the story, right? There's, I always say there's three yeah. versions of the story. His, hers, and the truth. Tru- and the truth, right. But the, we can't ignore this conversation. And regardless, the, these are real incidents. Like right. whatever you think now, like these things happen, right? You're, you're, you could potentially be with somebody. And I always think that's the worst thing in the world. If you're pro 2A, um, David Anastasi, one of my guests on the Mike Sedini podcast, he had to red flag his father. Right. Right. And what do you do when you have when you potentially may have to red flag somebody that uh, and you're pro 2A because you could get kicked out of this kingdom for doing something like that. And the scary it's such a gray area there that that I think there needs to be more structure to 
something like this because it can easily be abused. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of similar to the law where if somebody slaps you with a restraining order, you lose your CCW. Right. Like that to me, that seems so unconstitutional because it, you can go get a restraining order against anybody if you have enough quote unquote proof that you need it. Well, and in, 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 in a, in a relationship situation, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm an open book about my first divorce, very messy divorce, but you know, she had met a new guy and, and they knew because I worked in the gun industry to, you know, they always threw that out there. Like, Hey, we'll say you did this or Hey, I, you know, every time I would talk to them, even if I was calm or it was by email, they would always add, I feel in danger with the way you're talking to me. And I'm like, you don't feel any danger. You're just trying to set this up right. to where you could make a case. And I used to tell my my ex-wife, because I, I, wanted, I wanted him gone. I just wanted him gone. I'm like, you know, let's pretend you go through this route and I can't work in the firearms industry. Then you're not getting any money out of this la- this thing. You know what right. I mean? So your accusations, these false accusations, um, you know, they, they, they have consequences, especially for 2A people. Right. right. Um, and this is it just what a mess, you know, because technically, you know, that he probably shouldn't own a firearm. You, well, you definitely I know. definitely know. You had the gun to your head. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you also are part of the culture. You, you, you I know you are because that's how I met you. I right. met you through um, some of the influencers that are in the firearms industry. And we all kind of have the same mindset when it comes to our 2A rights right? Uh, and how we feel about red flag laws. But it's a, it's a hard conversation to have. And I think we, I'm so glad that you're able to talk about it because, you know, it's, it's complicated. It is very complicated. And like I said, it's a, a gray area and there needs to be um, more clarification about those specific red flag laws and, and how you go about um, not only, uh, you know, uh, obtaining one or, or seeing one through, but also how to protect the people that may not be, this may not be um, necessary. And so how do you protect well, the people versus how do you protect everyone else? Yeah. And, and I just inadvertently in the last, you know, few months became some, some sort of an expert on red flag law and transfer law in our state, uh, because they're so sloppily and hastily and carelessly written with zero input from law enforcement who has to execute said red flag law or the mental health community that's been adversely impacted by it, that I now find myself in a position of like, I have to do something. I I have knowledge of policy and laws. I got to do something. So um, what I've discovered is that Red flag laws, first of all, aren't permanent. You can't permanently remove somebody's firearms. It's temporary. Up to a year, but it's still temporary. So let's pretend that the person who really actually shouldn't have firearms gets red flagged. Well, so they're going to get them back at some point. That's scary. Like throw somebody in prison, right? You throw somebody in prison, uh, they're getting out. And when they get out, 70% of the time across the nation, on average, it's like 69 and change, they reoffend. So somewhere in that in between, rehabilitation has to happen. You throw somebody in prison, you better be rehabilitating while they're in prison. Otherwise, it's just a little timeout for adults. Um, with a red flag law, you better be addressing the issue that got that leveled up to that point that we're pulling 
constitutional rights away from somebody. And right now, our laws don't do that. They don't require any sort of intervention. Here's the other ugly part about red flag laws that absolutely just drives me berserk. They're ex parte, meaning you don't need the other side there to, to issue a determination that somebody needs to be red flagged and have their rights stripped. One person files the application and then it goes and it can go through as long as there's, and I just got done sharing this this morning with a, with a group, a preponderance of evidence on the application from a family member. Now to get it back, you need clear and convincing evidence, which is one level up in the burden of proof scale, just below, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt too. Um, so preponderance of evidence gets your guns taken away, clear and convincing evidence gets them back, but we don't know what the pathway to that clear and convincing is. It's absurd. Um, you can't protect people who really need protecting, and yet you have this open-ended opportunity to to strip people of their defenses uh, based on just hearsay. But not only that, so how do you – so say I were to do this. Uh, what stops him from turning around and doing it to me? Right, right. That's exactly it. And then, and then you're defenseless. Exactly. And then he gets his back a month before me. And you're dead. Exactly. And your kids are motherless. Yeah, no, this is a big, big BFD. Like, we we need to solve this. We need clarity um, because it's just it's just been carelessly, haphazardly applied for political purposes, and it makes me want to throw up. Yeah. Not that I have an opinion. Yeah, I never envy the situation. And first of all, anybody you know to understand relationships and to understand unconditional love, right? Um, I, I always hated it when a friend of mine would, would maybe he or she were broken up with by their significant other and, and they just became super depressed because they, they weren't ready for that relationship to end. So I always tried to feel like, what does the person want? Does, you know, instead of being like, man, screw that girl, let's go out and party. Right. It's yeah. always like, what is the end goal? Even if you're, you're, you're complaining about her or saying how evil she is. But if you, if I know you really want her back, then that's, you know, I always treat people like you're the quarterback. I'm the wide receiver. You call the play. I got to feel you out though. Right. If I, I, cause I, the worst thing is, is someone saying like, this person's horrible and you're knowing damn well, they're going back. Right. And they're having that moment of I'm over it. I'm done. Right. Right. But then they're going back. But I, I, I genuinely feel for people that are in bad relationships and, People are still mindful of ruining someone's life, right? Like you could, you could have made a play to take away his Second Amendment rights and try, right? Um, yeah. You just wanted out when you were done, right? Yeah. You hung in the pocket probably longer than you should have. Clearly, it was hard with three kids, and they were little at the time. And but not only that, I was worried he would lose his job, right? And uh, I mean, he went to jail once. Um, but I didn't follow through with the charges because I was worried he would lose his job. And I think that there's so many different moving parts to each situation and each situation is so different, um, that, you know, to have a law like this, that is just such a blanket. Um, it really is a, it does a disservice to the entire community. Yeah. hundred percent. It's uh, it keeps people from getting help. It could be dangerously abused. Uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, Jake and I always talk about the spirit of things. And, and I think a lot of people actually, if it, you know, in a perfect world, it would only be used against people that you needed to be used against. Right. Right. <laughs> just like anything. But that's just not the case. And there's other ways. I mean, that's one of Walk the Talk America's 
goals is to find alternative ways to get people the help they need, you know, when they're in crisis without fear of consequence. Yep. And that's important to us. Well, defining the laws and breaking them down and helping people understand that they can seek help when they need it and not lose their guns is, is one of the most vital aspects of this because I mean, even I was misinformed. And to, before this podcast, I pulled up the NRS and read it because I wanted to make sure that I, you know, had it correct because obviously I had been misled. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I always think about like different applications as well, right? Like even if that doesn't go anywhere, even if they ask the question just to get you at, right, Jake? Because like I could see different counties having different questions. You know, you know, especially when you look at, um, you know, that question on the CCW, it's like, uh, have you ever been admitted to a mental facility? I get to determine that. My answer is no, then <laughs> nobody, admi- nobody admitted me, I admitted myself, you know, so like, does that count? What is a facility? Do we define that? <laughs> Am I supposed to define that? He'd even asked you if, if I- you smoked marijuana in the last year. Like yeah. it's legal here. Well, that and that's a yeah. that's a huge issue right yeah. now in Nevada. Colorado went through the same thing, right? Because one's federal and one's state, right? And uh, that's something that needs to be addressed. There's a whole tie-in too with, um, you know, people's anxiety and using weed as a, a form of a therapy, I guess, right? Like as a coping mechanism. Yeah, as a coping mechanism, um, and it's becoming a huge issue because once again we're turning. law-abiding citizens into criminals right you know um, because if you lie on that form right yeah right and then but not also just to take it a step further uh, so we're taking law-abiding citizens who are following the nevada laws and say they um, smoke weed before bed for their anxiety instead of taking you know a prescribed drug they're doing it in a in a way to reduce the harm on their liver because all everything has to filter through your liver anyways, but um, pharmaceuticals are, are harder on your liver. So they're choosing a, a less detrimental drug because it works and it's less addictive. Um, you don't have a chemical dependency. We're going to go through withdrawals afterwards. And, and that's something that needs to be talked about as well because, you know, taking Xanax versus smoking weed at night, that needs to be addressed. That's, I mean, obviously one is safer than the other. Yeah. So here's what ours says. Um, Washoe County, it says, uh, during the five years immediately preceding the date of this application, have you been committed for treatment or of or convicted of a crime related to controlled substance? So um, your application sounds more stringent in your county. If it says one year of marijuana, because ours doesn't say marijuana. It says five years convicted of or treatment of controlled substance. Now, it's been inside of five years that marijuana got um, legalized. <laughs> so <laughs> what if, if, I'm, if I'm a weed smoker, five years ago I smoked weed uh, to the point that I had to get treatment for it, am I now, you know, four years later, uh, not allowed to carry a gun that i mean it's that even the time limit is arbitrary five why five why not seven why not two yeah well i want to thank you for coming on and being so open We're, we try to always be a little um, respectful of time <laughs> um, but you, you've hit the mark uh, i have one last question for you um 
you've been through a lot, right? How do you tend to your mental health now? Um, there's a lot of different things I do just to um, stay happy, I guess you would say, um, is I take time for me and try to make time to do the things that I really enjoy. So whether it's going hiking, um, going kayaking, rock climbing, um, things that are also good for my health, uh, because, you know, exercise alone is like an antidepressant. Um, but those things that I love to do that also serve multiple purposes have definitely kept me on track. Um, I do meditate from time to time, especially when I feel so anxious that I need it. But, um, being around happy people, that that's also a key thing is, you know, surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded, who want to elevate each other. And, and, you know, instead of focusing so much on the negativity uh, going on in the world today is a huge help. But exercise, 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 exercise it really helps. Jake, do you have anything to add to the close? No, just to reiterate the exercise. Exercise has been shown clinically um, across multiple studies to be more effective, not as effective, more effective than any SSRIs. So um, treat your depression with exercise. Absolutely do that. And you know, 100%. one thing I'm fascinated about um, is the mind-gut connection and the microbiome oh, yeah. of the gut because your serotonin it, like 90% of your serotonin is made in your gut and stored there. And so if your gut flora is off, the microbiome in your gut, it's going to affect your serotonin levels. And yep. so that to me is incredibly fascinating. I read about that stuff in my spare time. And and that's another way that I think is crucial in maintaining um, a positive outlook on life also is, is by eating well to to feed my second brain. Yep, good diet. Good diet is critical. Um, and so, you know, we want to say everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so you, if, you, if you find yourself doing something all the time that, you know, like alcohol consumption every night of the week and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm just not sleeping well. Eh, might, the two might be connected. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jake. Well, Thanks. Take us home. Appreciate your time, Marcella. This has been really, really revealing. I think it's been very educational, encouraging, inspirational—all things that we want to we want to do on this show. Um, on behalf of our our family here at uh, Walk the Talk America, and uh, we tell you, the listening audience, please share this. Um, you know, it doesn't do any good locked up in our heads. And if we want to heal the communities, we need to get it into other people's hands. So, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in the future. Have a great day and we wish you wonderful mental wellness. Bye-bye.